You're listening to Fundshack. I'm Ross Butler of Linear B Group, and today I'm talking with David Larson, Managing Director in Kroll's Alternative Assets Advisory Business. David is one of the best-known advisors on private equity transactions in valuations policy and advises some of the largest private market managers. He's a member of the International Valuation Standards Council. He's been Vice Chair of the International Private Equity and Venture Capital Valuations Advisory Board, IPEV, a member of the FASB Valuations Reserve Group, and he's been a special advisor to ILPA. David, thank you so much for coming all the way from Seattle, I think. So, so yes, from the, from the West Coast. I'm, I'm actually not based in Seattle, but um, I'm, a, I'm assigned to our Seattle office because that's the closest to where I live. Oh, where do you actually live? Somewhere so I, I live more in the, scenic? Uh, much more scenic. Um, <laughs> I'll say in a forest in the southern oh, part of Washington State. Um, actually, I'm near Portland, so I can fly in and out of the Portland, Oregon airport. Oh, you lucky man. And presumably your uh, activities at an industry level bring you to these parts somewhat regularly? So uh, let's say pre-COVID, I was on the road all the time. Mm. Um, Post-COVID, I think, and not that we're past COVID, but uh, things are starting to loosen up a little bit. It's my second trip to London in the last few months. I'm, I'm here on for an IVSC standards review board meeting. Um, starting to to get back into that travel mode. Well, it's it's to our benefits. And in my preamble, I gave a lot of uh, names and acronyms. And the the one that I'm most familiar with is is IPEV, the International Private Equity Venture Capital Valuations Board, which I've always viewed as the the kind of the international standard setter for for private market assets. Is that is that right? And how does that fit with with the others? Yeah, yes. And and IPEV actually came into being, and not, not that you want or need a, a history lesson, but it's a little bit interesting to know that IPEV came into being uh, in about 2005. And and to the and the reason it came into being is that there was a well, back in 2003, uh, there was a group of limited partners, general partners, service providers that got together and um, called PEG, um, another acronym, but um, the Private Equity Industry Guidelines Group. And PEG issued valuation guidelines, which at the time were somewhat earth-shaking. And again, that was back in 2003. And those they were earth-shaking um, only because they said, well, if the value goes down, write the, the investment down. And that was a little bit hard. And that actually was the reason that they came into being in the first place, because this was, for those of you who are connoisseurs of history, this is about the time of the internet bubble bursting. And many of the venture capital managers had not written their investments down. So IPEV said, hey, excuse me, PEG said, hey, I'm going to get my acronyms wrong too. (laughs) (laughs) PEG said, "Um, hey, if the value goes down, write it down. If the value is the same, um, keep it the same. But the earth-shaking part really was, if the value goes up, write it up. And and because PEG came into being, um, and the BVCA and invest uh, and and the um, European Venture Capital Association at the time, now Invest Europe, they started to look at the PEG guidelines, and and someone um, made the comment in a conference that, well, the PEG guidelines are compliant with accounting standards. And the BVCA and EVCA guidelines at the time are not. And that caused the leadership of, the, in particular, the EVA, EVCA to say, wait, how can that be? Until they realized that their guidelines, which were the lower of cost or impaired value, were not compliant with the accounting standards, which were fair value in a different iteration. And that gave rise to IPEV. And so the first IPEV guidelines came out in 2005, having been organized by the BVCA, EVCA, and AFIC, the, the French association. And the, 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 the decision underlying PEG's move um, was effectively to put private equity and venture capital in line with the rest of the finance industry. Is that correct? Well, I'd, I'd say in line, but, but really to be in line with the accounting standards. Because you, you, the, the industry was, I'll say, relatively small coming up through through the through the years and in, and back in and, and again this is um, I, I didn't know your listeners may not realize that they're going to get a little bit of a history lesson but, but way back in 1989 um, the U.S. National Venture Capital Association tried to come up with valuation standards and failed they could not reach a consensus but their non-consensus said report things at the lower of cost or impaired value if you go further back in time. 1940, the Investment Company Act in the United States, it basically said, report investments at fair value. Fair value at the time being defined as willing buyer, willing seller. 
So the accounting standard was always fair value. However, in accounting, um, and I am an auditor in a former life, uh, that in accounting, conservatism was deemed a good thing for a good portion of time, up until around 2003 and the Enron crisis hit. And when Enron hit, it became came to know, um, or many came to view conservatism as purposely understating. Mm. And that purposeful understatement is not a good thing. And so when PEG came together, they came really together to get things written down because people were not writing things down. But when you really got into it, and I actually led the, the technical team that wrote the PEG guidelines, those PEG guidelines said, hey, the accounting standard says fair value, which means if the value goes down, yes, write it down. But if the value goes up, you have to write it up. And that piece was deviated from that non-consensus practice or the conservative practice that had existed for years, even though it wasn't in com- technical compliance with accounting standards, but the industry wasn't that big and not that many people cared. So that's so interesting because my bias has always been, ah, um, this is private. Fair value is newfangled. And uh, we're being forced into this kind of moment-to-moment equity trading world, but actually well, things go in, cy- in circles or cycles, I guess. But back in 1940, that fair value policy applied to private assets. Yes, ab- yeah. absolutely. And and the and many have said, and, and I've had this conversation um, uh, with many limited partners to say, all that really matters is what we get at the end of the day. And and there there is some merit to that argument. However, when you really start to peel back the onion a bit and say, why do I need fair value? What is, uh, and, and, and separate and distinct from that, is fair value reliable? How do I get there? But, but especially in today's environment, in, in, in 2022, fair value has uh, become critical because if all of your assets, if I'm an institutional investor, and if all of my assets are not reported on a like-like basis, I run into problems from a financial reporting perspective. I run into problems from an asset allocation perspective. I run into problems from an employee compensation perspective, from a fiduciary duty perspective. I have a a lot of things that all of a sudden are are kind of gummed up or mixed up if I'm not looking at things on a like-like basis. And so that, that fair value perspective is meaning, what would I receive if I sold the asset today? actually allows us to look at things on that like-like basis. And in today's world, where many of our public equities have decreased in value, if I didn't take into account where the the quote-unquote true fair value of the private investments were, I may find myself over-allocated on paper, and I might have to try to start selling down my privates when, in fact, if the privates were valued fairly uh, at at Mm. the price that you would receive for them, if they've, if they've gone down by 5 or 10%, then maybe I'm not as out of whack from an asset allocation perspective as it may seem. So it's actually in the private equity and venture capital in, industry's interests to have fair value in the aggregate because they'll still they have greater access to I, institutional capital. I, absolutely. Downturns. I, the limited partner need fair value. They may say that they don't always want it, they don't always want to explain to their boards of, of uh, volatility, mm. but volatility exists whether or not you report it. Mm. So it's really being able to look at an asset from a perspective, from the same perspective of what would you receive again in that orderly transaction. It is hypothetical; it does require judgment, but that that value provides decision useful information. Holding something at an arbitrary value of cost mm. or last transaction value just means that you're making decisions on data that, that is not comparable, is, is not congruent, hmm. which potentially leads to a wrong decision. So that's the conceptual argument, which I'm sure we're going to have to, we're going to, have to come back to. But let's, let's talk about how, how this is being applied. So, for example, as you kind of alluded to, stock markets have had a difficult time this year. They're down 20, 30 percent across the world. Would you, do you expect to see a similar devaluation in private equity and venture capital portfolios over that same time period? So, so it, it's very difficult to generalize. And, and one of the important aspects of valuing private investments is that each individual private investment needs to be valued on its own, given its own merits. 
So I've 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 been in in numerous conversations in the in in the last month or two in particular, given the what's happening in the public markets, where it said, well, my underlying company is performing very very well. So how can the value be down? Well, if you, then you say, uh, and again, thinking about it from the context of that of the public markets, well. Then let's start to take back, take things um, a step back, or, or again, I'll, I'll use that term, peel back the onion. The public companies that are down in value may be performing very, very well too, yet they're still down. Hmm. So the so performance in and of itself is not a driver. The key driver is again, and I, I'll repeat myself, and I'm I'm sorry to to do so, but it's it it, it needs to be, uh, I'll say. It's paramount to the discussion is what would I receive if I sold this investment today? Flip that around. If you don't own this investment, private equity manager, and you're buying it today, what would you pay and why? And so if I've got an investment where um, I bought it, let's say, for 10 times EBITDA, a 10 times multiple, and let's say that the, uh, the EBITDA was five when I bought it, so I paid 50. And at the time I bought it, the comparable public company multiples were 12. So I got, it's a private company. I got it a little bit of a discount. So I, I, I bought it at 10 times multiple. The public company is, is now at 12. Well, this to, so I can do my math right, let's say that the public companies are down um, 25%. If I, if I do that right, that's down to, to an eight multiple. Okay. What does that mean for my company? Do I keep it at a 10 multiple? Said differently, would I pay a 10 multiple when the public companies are down at eight? Maybe, but why? Would, does that mean I should be two turns different? Should If the public companies are at eight, should I go down to six, be t- two turns different that like I was when I started? Um, those are the questions that you have to ask. It's not rote. So mm-hmm. Just because the, the publics are down 25% mm-hmm. doesn't mean that the private is going to be down 25%. But is the burden of proof on the manager to say why they're out of step. I'll say the bur- burden of proof for the manager is why. What would a market participant pay at June 30 for this investment? And if they, if the EBITDA hasn't changed, the burden of proof would be why would somebody pay a 10 multiple? Because when the public markets have dropped to eight, mm. and I've been buying privates below public mo- multiples. Mm. Now, the answer may be. Well, nothing's changed in this. The comps aren't very good, and we're kind of wait and see. That's kind of a weak answer. Uh, so you could to, to kind of keep it flat. Mm. But you could also say, well, we know that um, based on historic data, the private markets have a tendency to lag the pub, private um, the public markets, um, both on the way up and on the way down, and they don't necessarily go up as steeply or down as steeply as do uh, the private markets don't as, as do the public markets. So you'd say, okay, um, again, I'm using that multiple of eight, 25% decrease. Maybe if I really have in my heart of hearts saying, okay, if the public markets are trading at eight and I was going out to buy this today, maybe I would pay a 10, probably not. I would negotiate probably something closer to nine or eight or maybe even seven. So Given that that's where I would be buying, that's fair value. Now, I, I said I kept um, EBITDA flat. EBITDA has probably grown. Again, if this company is doing well. So even if I said, all right, EBITDA has grown to seven, and I used a seven multiple, then my overall value would be flat. So I'm at 49 versus 50. So th- those, are, there's, those are judgment items that come mm. into play. Mm. But fundamentally, that public market decrease drives the question of volatility is greater, risk is greater. From a fiduciary perspective, if you're buying a company today, why would you pay pre-downturn multiples when effectively you can get it at, at less? Yeah. Um, just to clarify, you mentioned that private markets don't go down as far and or don't go up as far or there's a kind of a smoothing effect. Is that a paper thing, or is that the nature of transactions in the private markets? I, I think it's more the nature of transactions, right? Because because the the private markets we know again the comparable companies are not one hundred percent comparable, mm. and the public markets are driven by 
idiosyncratic factors that differ from the private markets. The private markets are a little bit more, I'll say, are less volatile hmm. uh, because you're, you're, you're not trading as often. So it's, it's kind of a um, counterintuitive that the private markets are actually less volatile than the public markets because you don't trade every day. And so when, you, when something gets really hot in the public markets, the private markets are saying, I, there's no way I'm going to go. If, again, you take my example, and the public markets went from 12 to 20. I'm not going to pay 20. I'm not, I may not even pay 15. I may pay um, something less than that in the private markets, because, or, or I'm going to wait until, uh, and that's the lag effect, I'm going to wait for a quarter or two quarters or three quarters to see if that's the new normal. Yeah. Same thing on the downside. Um, just because it, it has a 25% drop doesn't mean that I'm automatically going to take this private co- company that's less volatile and take the volatility in the public market. I'm going to see what kind of ha- is going to happen over time. Is it going to stay at a seven multiple? Um, or is it that just kind of a um, part of the volatility that exists um, normally? And so that, that volatility that is in the public markets doesn't necessarily translate back into the private markets. Mm. So there's a, this, this element of subjectivity and judgment, and it's case by case, you can't generalize. But even in aggregate, you wouldn't expect private assets to really just mirror public assets because you know, they, they are similar, but they aren't the same. That's exactly right. And, and there's, let's say directionally, you can expect some things movement, let's say. So, but you don't necessarily, they don't necessarily move in lockstep. Yeah. So how many bad boys are there out there and girls? And, um, you know, I mean, IPEV is what, 17 years old. So, I mean, you would, one would expect this to be relatively harmonized now and everyone's fair valuing stuff. Is that? So, so I would argue that um, there still is some variability, but the vast majority of managers have, realize that fair value um, is the rule and is here to stay. Now, some people believe that the accounting standards changed, which they, they kind of did, but, but really they didn't. So the, the, the fact that you re- report at fair value, again, has been there since 1940. The definition of, of fair value up until 2006 was willing buyer, willing seller. In 2006, under the U.S. system, FASB redefined fair value as the amount you would receive in an orderly transaction using market participant assumptions. That's a lot of words. I'll say them again. The amount you would receive in an orderly transaction using market participant assumptions. It seems like that's a kind of a, a convoluted way of saying willing buyer, willing seller. But it's it's really the, the kind of the, the different shift in the paradigm is it's an exit price. It's a, what would you receive? Meaning that someone's buying it. So what would somebody pay? And that, that's the, the, the perspective. It still has to be orderly, willing buyer, willing seller, but it's from the buyer perspective. So the fact that you, let's say you invest in a debt, a private debt investment, and you plan to hold it for three years, that fact doesn't matter. It's really what mm-hmm. would somebody pay if they bought it from you today? Now, um, in international accounting standards, they basically adopted word for word, or they, they harmonized word for word, that same definition of fair value in 2011. So, and, and the IPEV guidelines have been consistently updated over time to, to reflect the accounting standards. So we have a, a harmonized world on what fair value is. That, that change in fair value language in 2006, again, it didn't change the principle. Everything was supposed to be at fair value. But it, it kind of sh- um, shined a bright light on the industry, saying, do a better job. And so it's really, and you also had the financial crisis, and you had regulation, um, you had an AIFMD here in, in, in Europe, you had uh, um, Dodd-Frank in the United States. All of those things put greater scrutiny on the industry to do a better job in their valuation. Mm-hmm. And more capital has been invested and coming back to what do the limited partners need, yep. they need fair value. So all of that has put pressure on managers to do a better job in coming to fair value. But it sounds like a, f- a fairly subtle change. It's almost like a slight mindset change. It's like yes. it, doesn't, it doesn't matter what you want as a seller. It's you've got to put yourself in the shoes of the buyer. It's, exactly. It's, it's, and, right. and, and, that's, and so now there's still a, uh, 
I don't like the word in conservatism because it's, again, mm. means perfectly mm. understating, but it, there is a level of prudence in valuations, meaning most managers are, are relatively prudent, meaning if they think they're going to exit in two quarters at 200, they probably have it valued at, at 170 or 180. They rarely go all the way to 200 until it really happens. So there's always, um, for most managers, there's prudence in the valuations. Uh, there's some that felt, feel like they want to be sticky on cost. Uh, but that's, again, there's, not a, uh, there's no basis that, that cost is, is any better um, than any other number other than when you actually enter the transaction. So, again, most managers probably do a pretty good job. There's still gradations of, of, of rigor. Um, a lot of managers, especially the big end of the market, they have an um, evaluation um, expert that assists with or validates their fair value estimates to provide greater transparency to the limited partners. So there's, there's a lot that's still going on um, and, and enhancements that are, are being done. And regulators are, are changing over time, putting more pressure. I was reading a, a, a famous venture capital blogger last week who um, uh, was talking about valuing uh, venture capital investments. And one of his principles was conservatism. And it's, I still find it difficult not to have sympathy with that, particularly in venture capital when things are so uncertain. Is there a, is there a distinction between the type of asset, venture, or, or private equity? So, so there's, uh, there may be more judgment required for certain early-stage investments. And early-stage investments may be a little bit more sticky around um, last transaction price. But there's no, there's no basis to say that, that the investor is benefited in any way by not being uh, rigorous in the valuation estimate. One of the favorite old examples, and it's an old example um, because it, uh, it, I think it demonstrates the point, but if you take, I think it was um, Google 20 or 25 years ago, it was a private equity owned um, or backed company, a venture capital backed company. And just before it went public, one of the private equity or venture capital firms that were, was an investor um, valued it at one times cost, and another one valued it at two times cost, and it actually, I think, IPO'd at um, approximately 10,000 times cost. So you could argue that they were valuing it conservatively, but the investors were making flawed decisions because they had much more exposure to venture capital and to let's say Google mm. than was than they was reported because the actual value was substantially greater than the reported value. Mm. So just because you've reported something again because you've purposely understated something that's not helpful mm. to decision makers. Yeah, it, it, I'm starting to think that maybe there's there is a kind of abstract conceptual argument for say holding it at cost or that that type of approach which is like uh, I'm going to put my fingers in my ears and say look, just because the rest of the world does it, this is a private asset and there's no, there's like no moral impetus for me to do this. But there's the other argument, which is just, I suppose, pure pragmatism, which is, yes, but because the rest of the world does this and your, your capital base requires it, why wouldn't you? And business people are normally pragmatic. Right. So why wouldn't you be on? I'm just trying to... So, so again, the, holding something at cost, cost is an arbitrary value at every moment in time other than when you buy it. Yeah. It's it's relevant at the time you buy it. It's relevant for purposes of calculating an, an IRR, a capital gain, or a, a, mm. a, an ultimate multiple. It's not relevant for making decisions as to how a portfolio is performing, what the, mm. um, for financial reporting, for your overall portfolio, If again, coming from the limited partner perspective. It's not relevant for making, again, all the decisions that you need to make, asset allocation, um, remuneration and so forth. So by by holding something at cost, all you've done is created some arbitrary value um, or use some arbitrary value in reporting that arguably is not helpful. Yes, it's easy. Um, it's easy to explain, mm. but it doesn't it's it's basically non-helpful. Okay, I think if we haven't convinced our listeners on fair value now, then we're not going to. So um can I ask you um, a few things about what's happening right now? Um, it, interest rates have arguably been um, a driver of, of 
uh, asset valuations, well, I think certainly have been, and now they're going up, that that could be the case in the other direction. Would you apply that to to, to venture capital? And if you would, is there kind of some, you know, practically speaking, when I'm factor, factoring this into my uh, valuation process, how should I be thinking about the interest rate impact? So, so the, the interest rate impact uh, is, is interesting. And again, it depends on the nature of the individual asset. Um, and, and where I am in, in um, let's say, in the life cycle of the investment. An early stage investment may, I, I could argue, may not be overly impacted by interest rate movements right now. Now, if, if they're sustained um, movements, then, then maybe yes. And the, the way they're impacted is looking at it from a return perspective. What's the required rate of return of the investor? So if you kind of look at it from a risk-adjusted perspective and say, all right, my, my cost of capital has historically been fairly low. I don't know, 2 3 5% of if I, if, if I look at the risk-free rates and, and where things are. Um, and I underwrite deals in the early stage space at 25 to 30%. Well, if my cost of capital, meaning the um, alternatives that somebody could use rather than investing with me, is now, let's say they can get 10% somewhere else, but relatively risk-free, where does that risk premium come, come through? Does that mean for the early stage, rather than underwriting at a 25% IRR, I need to, to um, internal rate of, re- of return, mm-hmm. I need to underwrite at a 35% or a 30% internal rate of return. All else being equal, that increased required rate of return says the value of the underlying investment needs to go down. And, or, again, that to, to, I have to compensate for that additional risk. So, again, everything else being equal, I said, all right, I was willing to pay um, for this next round uh, um, $100 million. Well, that was with the return expectation of 25%. Now, because of the market dynamics and interest rates and inflation and everything else that's mm-hmm. kind of going in there, I need a 30%. And again, I'm talking, it's, it's not this black and white, sure. but it, it, trans, it translates into that saying, yeah. well, I better not invest more than 900 million or 900,000, wherever I was, as opposed to the, to the 100 million. I, I should only put in 90 million as opposed to 100 million mm. because that's, otherwise I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be um, averaging down my internal yeah. rate of return. I'm only going to be getting 20% as opposed to the 25% that I need to, from an overall perspective, because I know some of my investments are going to fail, some of them are going to hopefully do well, and all of that means I've got to, I have to demonstrate that. So, that, so it's it's not a direct impact on early stage; mm. it's more of an indirect impact. Yes. What about for like the completely the other end of the spectrum? Lever, say a highly leveraged buyout. So the, the, the it, it effectively works similarly, and 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 it also raises a. A more interesting question, where we've gone through um, various aspects in 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 past times. If you look at the mega buyouts, you can ask yourself the question: Can you even get the debt to finance them? So, if, in other words, if I'm doing a, a ten billion dollar buyout, can I get five billion of debt? In today's market, maybe not. So, does that mean that the the value is all the way down to five? Probably not, because again, you're still looking at willing buyer, willing seller. You wouldn't do the deal until you could get debt. But maybe rather than $5 billion of debt, I can only get $4 billion of debt. So I have to write a bigger equity check. And I have to write a bigger equity check. And if I want to get a 15% or a 20% IRR with a bigger equity check, I better pay less for the company. So that's where, again, that in, it has an indirect impact on the amount that I'd be willing to pay because of the amount of debt that I can get and the amount of debt that I can get and, and service is driven by interest rates. Not wanting to get too complex, but couldn't you say, well, that, that's the amount of debt I could get for a single transaction, but it's a big company. I could break it up and then I can view it that way. But it, again, if fair value is, what would you receive in an orderly transaction using market participant assumptions? So that market participant, are they looking at that value, the amount they would pay for the company as a sum of the parts, oh, yeah. breaking it up? Mm-hmm. Or are they looking at it um, that they, they uh, get better value looking at the entire entity? Yeah. And what about inflation, kind of the other side of the, the coin? Is it, that- inflation is, is, is a double-sided coin. For many companies, it could be a benefit. 
because it allows, I mean, if you, if you look at projections, projections are going up. Now, costs may be going up, but if you can increase your revenues more than your costs in an inflationary environment, you actually could be accreting value. Hmm. So it really becomes the nature of the individual company, how you can manage that, that overall revenue and cost side, where, and how, where you can pass through the inflation um, or where the inflation is being uh, hitting you. So if, you, if your costs are going up quicker than your revenues, yes, it's going to drive the value down. If you can get your revenues to go up faster than your costs, and inflation may be a benefit in that, then you could actually be accreting value. And value could be increasing in this environment. So I've, I've noticed several points that you've made that, that seem to be, even though the overall environment is deteriorating, some of this goes in, in a private equity manager's favor. For, so for example, the venture capital guy, the, the carry hurdle is at the same, at the same place. And so it's easier to get there. And with the, the, the buyout guy, it's like, well, it kind of, it, it makes the leverage work even better. If right. the, yeah, okay. <laughs> so again, in, in, in each of these, and, that, and that's why I come back to, it is case specific. It, it is hard to generalize. Mm. Overall, yes, there's pressure, downward pressure on values generally. Mm. But each individual case um, has to be uh, evaluated on its own merits. So there will surely be um, a fair number of uh, comp- large companies that struggle and default. Um, what's what's the process on a default? Do you write it straight down to zero if it, if it could? If it doesn't meet its repayments, can't meet its repayments. Again, you look at it individually. Generally, and in many large buyouts, you there's some negotiation process, and and you are also always looking at what is it that you have invested in, how you evaluate it. If you're invested in the private debt, may be different than how you're uh, how you evaluate mm-hmm. it if you're invested in the private equity or the equity in that private company. Ah. And so the equity, they, they don't move in lockstep, but if the debt has a claim on the cash flows in front of the equity, which it generally does, and the company is struggling and it may be missing payments or, or uh, not able to meet all of its payments, the value of that debt may decrease. But let's say the debt goes from 90 to 70. Well, the even though that you say, well, if the debt's valued at 70 um, cents on the dollar, um, there, is there any value to the equity? And the answer, and so you, so just pure mathematics, you would say maybe not. However, banks don't like, or or debt holders don't like to run companies. They need management. They need somebody to, to actually run the company to, to generate as much cash flow as possible. So there's still some value, and maybe it's option value in that equity. So maybe the equity piece, depending on how far down we are and, and, and how troubled it is, maybe that equity goes to, to 50 or to 40 or to 20. Probably still has some value because you need somebody around to run the company, um, and there's some option value when things turn around. And that valuation, is it a function of the behavior and attitude of the private debt holders? Combination. I mean, again, you can if you look at it purely on the claim, they, they get they get 100% of whatever cash is available. But history tells you that there's negotiation. And that's why there may still be some option value in the equity when things go, turn south or go underwater. Right. Does, does the broad adoption of fair value have any impact on um, if there was a, a truly kind of horrible recession or, or depression? Does it have any any impact on the the resilience of 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 the alternative asset industry in general? I I would argue it shouldn't. Other than it it highlights to investors what's what's really happening. So if if things are are turning um, down, and I have and my private equity investments are are decreasing in value. That anytime an investment decreases in value, the investor may may be worried. But if you if you look at the the flip side and say, all right, my my publics, um, are, I'm in a I'm in a deep recession, and the public my public investments are down fifty percent, and let's say I was in the old world and I was holding all my privates at cost. Well, it looks rosy that I've I've got that, but I've got not only do I am I down fifty percent, I still have to make 
the capital calls for new, for new investments. And so it looks like I'm, I'm putting more and more of my assets into, into the private space. Well, if those privates were actually reported at fair value, maybe they're down to, to 70 in a, in, a, in, a, in a deep recession. Uh, at least we're, we're in the same realm, the same direction, and we're not out of whack from mm. an asset allocation perspective. Mm. So, and, you, and you're looking at things from a fiduciary perspective as objectively as possible. In the financial crisis um, back in 2008, 2009, some argued that fair value accounting somehow caused the crisis. Well, I've always struggled with that notion because fair value gives you more information. Um, And they said, well, it's fire sell pricing. Well, no, the fair value rules, again, as I've said multiple times, it's willing buyer, willing seller, but it's an orderly transaction. Fire sale is not fair value. Yeah. yeah. That, it is pro- fair, yeah. The fair value mm. rules preclude you from using a, a quote unquote fire sale price. It's like shooting the messenger, isn't right. it? Right. Yeah. So, so, so the fire, fire sale pricing, or again, just because you're, you're trying to exit, that's not necessarily fair value. Mm. Fair value, again, is that orderly transaction price. So in times of dislocation, maybe the, the bid-ask spread or the, is, gets wider and that kind of reasonable range is wider, but it doesn't change what's actually happening with cash flows. From what you've said, I think there's probably an argument that fair value um, might help to ameliorate a recession given that it provides that transparency to allow more efficient allocation of capital and more confidence around where you actually stand. Exactly. At a minimum, it gives you the ability to make decision, an informed decision. Yeah. Um, the um, the U.S. dollar is appreciated significantly against the other major currencies. If I'm if I've got a, a dollar fund and I've got a lot of exposure to um, sterling or, or or the euro, um, what you know? How would you advise a, a, a someone responsible for the valuations in that scenario? It, it, it's very straightforward. I mean, you're generally valuing it in the company's operating currency. So if I've, if I've got a company based in Europe, so I'm, I, I have a U.S. dollar fund. I have a company based in Europe that's revenues and costs are in the euro. Um, all else being equal, because of the devaluation, the value of that investment is going down. Yeah. So just like if I had a euro-based fund, Investing in the U.S., all else being equal, the value of that investment just went up, because fair value. The premise is, what would you receive in that orderly transaction, mm-hmm. selling it today? So effectively, you're using today's spot rate for purposes of, of translating that euro investment into the into dollars. Now, from a forward-looking perspective, you may look at forward curves and things to to actually value a, vis- a business if it's got multiple currencies that it's operating in. So you're going to look at that to say, again, what would that market participant pay? But if I'm just have a, a dollar fund and a euro investment and the euro's gone down or the dollar strengthened, mm. it's just, and, and again, I just explained that to my investors. That's one of the, the risks of investing in a different currency. I mean, there's, there's investment risk associated with the actual performance of the underlying, underlying mm. company, but there's also a risk associated mm. with currency. Mm. Which is normally hedged at the uh, institutional level, it, and, and it, it very well may be hedged. It may be, there may be some type of, of natural hedge. There may be different ways to, to mm, deal with it. Mm, but mm. again, just overly simplifying it, the spot rate changes, the value is going down. So even if, even yeah. if I use the old cost premise, mm. the value is still down yeah. because of the currency. Yeah. Well, that seems like one of the most simple aspects of this subjective task of valuing them. Right. And, and, and it also highlights that, well, why would I hold something at cost? Meaning I, pay, I paid 100, I translated that into euros, I actually could only get $80 back today because of the change in the euro. Why would I hold it still at 100? Hmm. That, it, it doesn't make any sense. No, I think it's, there's a psychological thing though, isn't there, where, where people associate value with merit. Right. right. So, but, but, but again, I, I think it highlights that that the, the increasingly diminishing camp of managers that, that are stuck with cost 
just look at the currency changes and say, how, how could that make any sense? Mm-hmm. It's not helpful to anybody. Yeah. Uh, is, so um, IPEV every now and then releases new like, up, updated guidance, particularly, I think, around in times of turmoil, which you know, characterizes today, I'd say, fairly well. Are there any plans in the offing? Can, can we expect anything by the end of the year? Or So, so the, the IPEV board has, has a general policy, um, and I'm not, no longer a member of the IPEV board. I still am involved in um, an advisory role um, to the board. But the IPEV board has historically updated the guidelines approximately every three years. Right. So the last major update to the guidelines was 2018. For those looking at the calendar, it's now 2020, and there's not any new um, guidelines that have been out. There's a couple of reasons for that. One, uh, in, tw- in 2020, in uh, March, the board did issue special guidance dealing with, with COVID when we had a big market drop in uh, March of 2020. So it listed about, I think, 10 points uh, for consideration, and those 10 points basically said, follow the guidelines, if I distill them down. <clears throat> the guidelines cover things, but they, but they, so they just, there were um, emphasis of, of the, of the comfort blanket. Right. Um, fast forward to, I think, December of 2020, the IPEV board reiterated that guidance. Um, maybe said it in a slightly different way, but basically said, we're still in the midst of COVID. Um, if you didn't listen to us last time, listen to us now, follow the guidelines. Um, this is my words. I'm, I'm, yeah, I, yeah. I'm paraphrasing. I'm not, please, I'm not superimposing anything on, on, on the board. You can go to the, the IPEV web, website and see the actual guidance. In March of 2022, in, in reaction to the um, Russian-Ukrainian hmm. um, conflict, they issued additional guidance, basically dealing, uh, expanding a little bit, saying, all right, if you've had something that was actively traded and it's not, kind of what do you do? So you, you've had those things. You also had at the end of, um, if I get my memory right, in late 2021, the U.S. FASB issued an exposure draft, um, or maybe it was uh, it was actually mid 2021, tweaking the accounting ASC Topic 820 Accounting Standards Codification 820, the Fair Value Rules under U.S. Generally Accepted Accounting Principles. And because that exposure draft was outstanding, the board said, we, don't, we want to wait and see what FASB actually does, because if FASB makes a change, it could deviate from international standards, and we'll have to address that in the guidelines. So we don't want to do updated guidelines in 2021 and then have to redo them in 2022. Um, FASB finally agreed on that change and, and issued the change at the end of June of 2022. And that's a, in some ways you could argue a limited change, but it, but it's, it's probably much more deep than people understand and not to get overly technical, but it's, it basically says that if there has been, or if there's a contractual restriction for an equity security, and I'm paraphrasing it, you have to ignore it, which, if you say everything I've said to this point about market participant assumptions, say, how could they say such a thing? And I'm still scratching my head on how FASB could say such a thing. Can you explain? I don't fully so understand So, for example, if you do an IPO yeah. and you are um, have an underwriter's lockup where you cannot sell your shares for six months, um, you, you have to ignore that. So you value your shares at P times Q, even though you can't access the public market and can't get that public market price. Hmm. It sounds confusing. It is confusing. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. And I'm, okay. I'm, I'm on record to say I do not agree with FASB. I think it's a, a misguided decision. But why do you think or do you care it, to speculate? It, 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 it overstates um, the value yeah. of what a market what you would receive. Yeah. So if I've got a, and and it is it's beyond just underwriters lockup. It's any type of contractual restriction. So let's say I bought a company from an entrepreneur, and part of that, the entrepreneur was wanted to sell it to me. Um, I'm a big private equity fund, but I say, hey, we don't want anything to really to happen with this. We want to make sure you hold it for two years. So part of the contract is you can't sell it for two years. 
Let's say I paid 100 for that. Well, under this new rule, embedded in that contract is a contractual restriction. FASB says you have to ignore it. Right. So fair value then is some his um, values, maybe it's 110 or 120. Mm. You have to come up with some value of what the value would be without that restriction. Mm. You can imagine unintended consequences of that. I think there, there's huge un- unintended consequences. Anyway, so <laughs> I, I interrupted your question on IPAV to give you this, the, the, well, the change in, in US GAAP. That's why the IPAV board has delayed. The IPAV board is, is, is working right. now to incorporate the new FASB guidance to look at their special guidance over the, pl- the past few years. And they, I would expect them either late this year, they, they have a tendency to either, t- if, the, if changes are not significant, to try to get them out before the end of the year. Yeah. If changes are significant or they, for whatever reason, it's a voluntary board, they run out of time, they try to push those to not release until April so let people finish their, first, their year-end stuff yeah, and yeah. not, not mm. g- um, have a new standard hit. Um, along the way. So I would expect something to come out near uh, the end of the year or let's say April. But can I just go back to the FASB stuff? Do, would you would you be willing to speculate on why they've made this move? Are there any upsides doing to that move? The the only uh, let's it's articulated in their basis for conclusion. It's interesting that four board members voted in favor and three board members voted against. So it's, it was definitely not consensus. The, the, those who voted in favor had the feeling that this would simplify accounting and reduce cost of those doing the accounting. They also, some of them were concerned with the impact of restrictions on donations to charities. It has nothing to do with private right. equity, but yeah. but fair value is pervasive yes, across yeah, any yeah, anything. So mm. so they were dealing with mm. other issues, mm. and and so they 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 seem to just ignore mm. the impact on on the on private equity or, and and venture capital. Mm. And and I, I'm not trying to put words in their mouth. I'm not trying to throw stones. I'm just saying no, no, it doesn't. Yeah. If you, if you actually read the basis for conclusion. Mm. The arguments for the three dissenting board members are much more pervasive than the arguments from the three or from the four board members that are in favor. How disruptive would it be for IPEV to go against? Well, or not align or not it, harmonize? It, it's, or? it's, it's be, IPEV has an issue to figure out how to, to deal with it. And, and I think what IPEV can do is just to explain there's a difference and explain that. IPEV is principle-based, and you should use market participant assumptions. There's a, an interpretation floating around from, from FASB that says you still have to use market participant assumptions, and you have to look at the principal market. Well, the principal market for a security with a restriction is not the public market. And so even though their intent was to get rid of those underwriters' lockup discounts, you could argue, well, the, part, the, the principal market for a security with a restriction, with a contractual restriction, is not the public market, is the private market, and therefore we're the same way as we were before. I don't think that was FASB's intent. That's a way that, that um, IPEB could deal with it. Mm-hmm. On the principal market, it will remain to be seen how, we, how they kind of deal with it. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because before you mentioned the FASB issue, I was going to say, and with the greatest respect to you know IPEV and the great work that's being done, it feels a little bit like we're, we're in the domain of technical tweaking. You know, at the yes. st- PEG was like a like massive change, and this is, but but I guess spanner in the works, left, right, and center, and they're, well, every now and then at least. I well, suppose. there's a there's an additional technical piece that is as of yet, I'll say, somewhat unresolved, and that is. Under U.S. accounting principles for limited partners that they're reporting their fair value, again, fair value is the amount you receive in an orderly transaction, well, how do you value a limited partnership interest? Limited partnership interest, you say, you're initially say, well, the secondary market. Well, the secondary market may value that at something different than the net asset value that the manager reports. That was a question that came up way back in 2000. 9, 2008, 
2007 at, at FASB and the, and the Valuation Resource Group at FASB, where I, where I was a member. And the, the conclusion then, and, and embedded in U.S. GAAP is, no, that, that doesn't make sense to go with secondary market pricing because that's not really transparent enough. It's better to say, if the general partner values everything at fair value, one of the additional reasons I didn't highlight at the beginning, but if they report everything at fair value, uh, meaning the amount you'd receive in that orderly transaction, well, net asset value reported to the limited partner actually is the best estimate of fair value because that's the actual cash flows you would receive if all of those underlying investments were sold at that date. So that's why net asset value works. But it has to be contemporaneous as of the same measurement date. It has to be You have to satisfy yourself that it's fair value. So there's a, embedded in U.S. GAAP is a, an ability to do that mm. if everything's fair value. Historically, if I've invested in a fund that reports under IFRS, international accounting standards, because the fair value rules were the same, everything was okay. Well, now the fair value rules differ because of this new component. So does that mean any fund that reports under IFRS a U.S. invest limited partner needs to make an adjustment before they can and ask about these contractual restrictions and, and make a change before they can use net asset value. It actually puts more work on the limited partner, even though the intent was to, to save work along the way. So that there, there's a number of unintended consequences and unanswered questions. Mm. So we may be in the domain of technical tweaks, but actually the the, the, the trickle-down effects and the consequences are, are huge. This, this all really matters. Yes. Very interesting times we live in, I suppose. And sometimes, I suppose, valuations is a bit of an arcane subject, but it doesn't feel like that right now. And it's been great to have you, you know, walk us through it, David. But it's, it's been a pleasure to, to be here. I hope that you're, the audience is still awake. I mean, <laughs> valuation can be a, a bit of a, oh, it must be straightforward. But it is important. It does. Um, it may not be at the same level of getting a, a 5x or a 10x return, but along the way to help people exercise fiduciary duty and make good decisions, it's a key component of the overall regulatory framework and investment framework uh, and being able to really understand and, and um, make good decisions. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Fund Shack podcast. Make sure you subscribe and visit our website at fund-shack.com for many more video interviews. It's the private capital channel for alternative investment professionals. Thanks for listening.